2020 marks the 50th birthday of Griffin Theatre Company's home, the Stables Theatre. I'm Angela Caterns. Join us as we celebrate the anniversary in this special series of podcasts where we'll hear about the theatre's history and talk to some of the country's most celebrated artists. So who's really running the show? In this episode of the Stable's 50th birthday podcast series, we meet the artistic director and the executive director. Lee Lewis has been Griffin's artistic director since 2013, but in 2020 she's taking on a new challenge. And Karen Rogers is Griffin's executive director. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Angela. Thank you. So who's the boss of who? Uh it depends on the day and what's gone wrong and who's to blame. I'd agree with that. Would you? I'd like to ask this question of you both. How did you come to a life in, in the theatre, Karen? Well, I started off uh, thinking I wanted to be a teacher, did my teacher training in English speech and drama. And during that course, a very wise lecturer uh, said to me that perhaps it wasn't the best uh, career choice for me, realised I was going to be a very <laughs> terrible teacher and suggested I take up stage management. So I started stage managing amateur productions, musicals. Uh, I did Annie and Cabaret and Evita and fell in love with stage management and ended up at, at NIDA doing the production So course. I wonder what were the qualities that this teacher saw in you that thought, ah, there's a potential stage manager? Well, organisation maybe. I love a list. A little bit of OCD. You're also a bit wicked. A bit wicked. <laughs> you know, a, a whole generation have been saved from your somewhat untoward teachings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's probably that as well. And so, Lee, tell me what drew you to a, a life in the theatre. You've been doing it forever, haven't you? Forever. I, destiny. I was three years old when I first went backstage as a bluebell in a dance concert. And I remember standing backstage, I can still see the the floorboards back there and the curtain and some ropes. And I thought it smelled amazing. And I walked out on stage and the lead bluebell uh, fell apart and didn't know what to do. And someone had to take control. And from then, I've never let go. (laughs) (laughs) So you just elbow the poor bluebell, lead bluebell out of the way and Took over. If you're not tough enough, get out of the way, I say. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. And so, Lee, can you describe the role of the artistic director? Do you have much autonomy and freedom to make your own decisions? On paper, yes, I have a lot of freedom to make decisions, but in reality those decisions are impacted on by thoughts about audience, the people who are making work, artists and the teams around them. And a lot of the work is about various compromises to the point that a work is on stage and the hope that those compromises won't take away the spirit of the work. Mm-hmm. So it, it, on paper, a lot of freedom. Uh, and in some ways, yes, of course, freedom. But when you take everything into consideration, it's a very narrow path. Mm-hmm. I also think at Griffin, um, part of it is about responding to the community that we live in and the times that we live in and the conversations that are going on. So, you know, I think Lee as the Artistic Director has been very aware of what is important, what are people talking about, what are people interested in, you know, in oh, looking no, at true. the program that we've put together in the last few years. D- a, a different a different artistic directors are more like auteur directors and the, the theatre company is their company and they take it on a journey, whereas I feel like I've worked for the idea of a company. Griffin's mm. such an institution in Australia that I think we 
hand the baton on to, to the next person. Or um, It's more of a stewardship uh, in my head anyway. A different artistic director could think differently. Do you actually choose the works that are staged there? Oh, yes. <laughs> that's, that's your job. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, it's a new writing company, so we're very dependent on who writes what. So it's responding to the playwright's voice, really, and the playwrights of Australia, their voices. If they don't write it, we can't stage it. And because we don't commission work at the moment, the government cuts took away that capacity. Because we're not commissioning, we're really responding to the the writers of Australia. So we choose, but from what's written. Mm-hmm. Karen, what what's the, your role? What's the role of the executive director? Well, broadly, I think it's to ensure that the artistic director's program can work, that you can achieve the vision of the artistic director, but maintain a viable bus- uh, commercial business sitting behind that. So it's, it is an um, administrative job, but it, I always see it as supporting the artistic vision of the company and ensuring that that can be delivered. Mm-hmm. There's, an, there's an extraordinary moment that happens, though, when, when we look at all the plays that could be done. And there's this look I get in my eye. I said to Karen, so, and she goes, no, no, we can't do it. We can't do it. But then somewhere in her is this, this, uh, this spark is ignited with the possibility. And so she'll go away and somehow find the extra resources to pull off an eight-handed play <laughs> in that little theatre. And, and that's part of the fun of it, is seeing how to make mm. impossible things happen. It's a bit of a magician's trick in there. Yeah. And knowing what is important, I think, to what is important to get on the stage, what is important to maintain a happy staff, what is important to make sure that the audience keep coming. What can afford to not necessarily knock it out of the park and not take the company down? Yeah. You know, there have been a couple of projects where I've gone, and she's gone, really? Okay. And I'm like, trust me, trust me, it'll work. I remember when Lee brought in The Bleeding Tree, which was my first season at Griffin, and at that stage it didn't even have characters assigned and gave me the play to read. And I was just, I couldn't believe, I was like, oh, that's the play we're going to do. And then... That has been such a huge success, that play, on so many levels. So often the risk that we take around new work, you just have to uh, believe in the vision of, well, particularly for me, the artistic mm-hmm. director. But we also didn't put it in the theatre for that many weeks. We sort of hedged it that yeah, way. We, we kept a bits, short yeah. season. And we didn't have – Paula Arundel is well-known in theatre but not necessarily well-known to the wider audience by name. And so we – we really made sure that there wasn't it wasn't a hugely expensive show to make in its first outing. But I think because we work in new writing, we talk we different to other theatre companies. Sometimes we don't know how a play is going to go, and so we do talk a lot. We hypothesise about who will this audience be, how long can this play go for, who is this going to attract. Whereas if you're doing a play Hamlet or you know, a play that everyone knows, you, it's not so much risk around the audience. So we do talk about that quite a bit in terms of our programming. But so here you are kind of making a prediction about who might like a work. Are you ever caught out and, and oh, yeah, found I, to be wrong? I thought Bleeding Tree was a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> no, not exactly a comedy, but I thought it was a lot funnier than it was on paper. And then once we started digging into it, it got darker and darker and darker. And that's a combination of the people that we had working on it. But, but that was – we didn't predict – the oh, prima facie, we didn't we didn't realise how well that would go. Mm-hmm. Um, how many people that it personally connects to? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't know when you when you're playing in the world of of big issues. You don't know how many people are sitting in the audience with a direct lived experience of a problem, mm-hmm. and that's always surprising 
problems go far deeper than than we actually acknowledge often, and the stories will make that visible. Mm. Mm. Let me ask you personally what it was, or what uh, in your character or your upbringing um, that you think gave you the skill base for your role in the theatre, Karen. Well, I've always loved story. We were always a family that were, you know, encouraged to read, to celebrate story. I love being with people uh, and sharing. So I think that there was probably uh, a love of wanting to share story in terms of my career choice. Mm -hmm. Then I think innately, um, you know, I just, I have, (laughs) I I think part of the role is about, being able to facilitate other people's vision and work and care for that and decide that is also innately interested in in management and what that means systems and procedures and uh, policies underlying that so there's probably a few layers mm-hmm. to to it that this what that made me interested in the role mm-hmm. lee what what was it in your in your upbringing do you think there's a little bit of magic inside theater And I think that I've always been drawn to that mysterious place where you can't quite define what's happening. But I also think you you don't become a director because you're not a control freak. I think <laughs> I found a I found a creative path for that particular talent. But so as a child, were you a control freak? Were you oh, yeah, controlling completely. siblings? Completely. Really? Uh, it's that funny thing. As a director, you have to be the person that puts up your hand and says, "I know." And even if you don't, you put your hand up and say, I, I know, and people follow you. And, and there's a little bit of that. And I've always been that way. I, even if I couldn't do something, I'd put my hand up and go, I'll, I'll try that. And it always amazes me when people don't do that. So, <laughs> uh, so I think, I've, interestingly, it took me a long time to come to directing. I went in via acting, which was a more obvious path, especially for young women at that point. Oh, and I've been directing for a, f- a few years. My dad said, do you ever think you'll go back to acting? I said, oh, no, Dad, I think I'm a director. And he said, oh, thank God, took you long enough to realise. And I was like, <laughs> well, thanks for telling me. He said, like, I'd ever tell you anything. But he said, you've been a director since you were little. And those are things that other people see about me that I don't necessarily recognise in myself. Uh-huh. Fantastic. And so you two need to collaborate fairly closely? Mm. Yes. Oh, yeah. Completely. Completely. Do you ever disagree? We don't disagree. Well, we sometimes don't see the world eye to eye and we have to argue around what uh, is important and um, but I don't. I wouldn't say we disagree on things. No, we're quite in sync about big things. So mm. uh, and the the work is the jobs. Both jobs are quite huge, and we it's not possible to be there all the time. And what we've found over the years is that when something's happened at the theatre and one of us has been away or uh, not there. We get back together and one will say, oh, well, look, this is what I did. I hope that's okay. And invariably, we both would have made the same choice had uh-huh. we been there. Uh-huh. So we haven't had any huge situations where we've completely disagreed. That doesn't mean we don't have robust conversation. We absolutely do. And I think we talk about what's important but in terms of the work that we do and the company that we are and the staff. And um, and we talk through things a mm. lot. We don't necessarily land on a decision first. We're not decide first people, either of us. No, we I think that's a, true. We work through to a decision. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think everyone would agree it's a, it is an important relationship because if it you know, if this breaks down or, or we weren't on the same page, yeah, it wouldn't be a nice and, place to be. <laughs> and I'd add, add the chair of the board into that mm-hmm. mix as well. Mm-hmm. But if that three-way isn't really functioning well, it's really p- hard for a company to feel healthy. Uh-huh. And would it be fair to say the artistic director has a sort of right to take risks and the executive director has a right to mitigate those risks? 
So I think in broad terms that's probably right. I yeah, think but it, it has also to be- flips in other times as oh, well really? because mm. because sometimes I can mitigate the risk of one work with another or mm. in the cast. That's and, true. And at other times Karen will push the boat out insofar as a spend on something and I'll get – she'll put the push the budget up, which means the target goes up and I get really panicked because that thing of like having to make it good enough to deliver that many tickets. Mm-hmm. So sometimes she'll go, no, I think this is actually going to – this is really going to work. And I go – so it's, it's a who takes the risk when is the question. Uh-huh. Because it's new writing, it's always going to be a risk. There isn't something where you can say this is definitely going to work. Yeah. So there's an element of danger in your work, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's More the fun. Yeah. And More what? Making you feel sick More sick making. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah, I, really? I, I do describe it as, as extreme sports, new, a new writing theatre. I love a good game of tennis, which is what the state theatre companies feel like, a good, safe game of tennis. There's something about when we go into first preview on those works that we have have never seen an audience before where, you know, I just it, it's like the nervousness of knowing how that work is going to be received by its first audience. Yes, a white-knuckle um, ride. Oh, it completely. is, it is, yeah. you know, and it, it, I get so nervous on those nights to just see are the audience going to see in this what we saw in this so yeah it can be nerve-wracking oh yeah but addictive yeah it's addictive as well yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and so you both have to know who your audience is do you know who your audience is well we do but we also are always looking for new opportunity and so it varies from play to play try to, Absolutely. Ma- try to make it so yeah yeah really. and initiatives in the company um, like the Batch Festival, which Phil Spencer, who is the Artistic Associate, has brought to the company, that brings in new audience and new ideas and new artists. And that's really exciting as well um, for us to make sure that we're continuing to stretch what we can be and and, and who might come to the theatre. And it's always interesting when people come who have never been to Griffin before. You can tell because they try to get in the window. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, no, I love them. I love them so much because it means new people yeah. coming to we the company. We always get really like, excited. The we go, oh, they're, they're like, new. They've never been here. <laughs> crazy woman in the window smiling at me. I don't know. I'm like, yeah, you made it. <laughs> and so how would you describe Griffin audiences? Oh, they're the best in the country. <laughs> uh, hands down. They are literate and curious and... Often impatient, but uh, willing to walk up the stairs. So they're mostly fit. <laughs> uh, and I would say that it, the company attracts across different ages and uh, our, our dem- age demographics are unlike any other company. We go from from very uh, quite a substantial young audience through to uh, like literally anyone who can still make it up the stairs. We've got patrons in, in their 80s who have been coming all of their lives and take pride in the fact that they can still elbow people out of the way to get into the second row. But it's just that their willingness to hand their night over to a place that is not guaranteed. That's that's kind of interesting, as opposed to an audience going looking for something that that reassures them. So they're taking a risk. They're absolutely too. taking yeah. a risk, and that's what I that's what I love about them. But they're across the different ages, they are all ratbags at heart, uh, and that's why they like the risk. Uh, it was a bunch of ratbags that started it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> Lillian Hall and Anna Volska still rat bags. I mean, they don't seem it now, but they really are. And I think that's the fascinating thing about the the found space, maybe as opposed to the conventional big glossy space. 
the gloss will attract a different need in mm. audience. Whereas- we do talk about the audience being enjoying the risk or being interested in the risk, not only of coming to a space that is so intimate, you know, in that amazing corner. Awkward corner. Awkward corner. <laughs> uh, you know, the experience of being in such a tiny space, being able to see the audience on the other side, what that intimacy brings, but also the fact that Often our audience, they may not love every play, but they're willing to come back and give the next work a try. They often at least, you know, Mm -hmm. they talk to us about, we might not have liked this one, but there'll be something in the year that we'll like. So that's exciting as well. Do you think Griffin and what you've been programming has had an effect on the more mainstream theatre companies in this country? Yes, without a doubt. Ten years ago, doing Australian work was too risky for a lot of the main companies. That's the language, the language they had around it was that it was risky and they were afraid of that risk and they would try to hedge in various ways. Short seasons, put it in a smaller space, do it with newer people so that your big audiences weren't necessarily attractive, cheap, cheap, cheap ticket prices. And that all showed a lack of faith in the work. And now they've all of the companies have got substantial Uh, commissioning and development programs and they're putting the works on stage and they're figuring out how to make it work with their audiences. They're also, uh, you know, when Sam started doing revivals, the other companies weren't doing revivals of Australian plays. They weren't saying, oh, this is an Australian classic. So we've started to have that conversation about which of our plays are classics. And so all of those those ideas have been trickle-ups from Griffin. Uh, So it, it feels a little bit relentless on our part. We're always going, Australian plays, Australian plays. But it feels like over the last 10 years, it's had an impact. Mm. And I think audiences now too are more are excited about our voice and who we are and our stories. They want to see them on those, the opportunity to see that on the bigger stages as well. So, mm. And I think that that has come from some trust in what we do as well. You wouldn't call it the most comfortable theatre. <laughs> no. <laughs> For no. both actors and audiences. And yet everyone loves working there and everyone loves seeing plays there. And so... Why do you think that is? Well, I think there's a magic in the actual physical space. There's a magic in that corner. I know Lee says awkward and I know sometimes, you know, obviously as a director it is, but there is something beautiful about being in that theatre and being so so close and um, the actors that they cannot escape it's inescapable and they so they it the work is always so clear and they can't get away with anything and i think there's something beautiful about that i also think maybe there's something about just getting back to the 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 basics the basics there isn't any trick in there storytelling yeah you know there's a, st- a story an actor and an audience and ultimately, you don't need a lot more than that. We have a bit more, a few lights and a bit of sound and design, but not a huge amount more. And there's something reassuring about that. Because sometimes when you go and see the big, big shows and you go for the spectacle and for the wow of it to be transported, it takes so many millions to transport you. But sometimes it's just a combination of words and a beautiful actor two feet from you mm. and you're transported. And I think. I think the humanity of the Griffin space is what's starting to attract people, especially as as people are seeing more entertainment on screens. When they get to Griffin, it's like no other entertainment experience. Uh, the intensity, the, the, the deep humanness of it, it's just that close that you can't avoid it. Some people run away from it. Yeah, it's too much for them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's fair enough if it's not 
for them, mm. then oh. they're not for me, really. <laughs> <laughs> and the actors is an interesting question. There are some actors or they don't actually like it. Mm. It's too it's too, too close. close. Too, too close. close. And, and you're right, backstage is... You know, those conditions are... Uh, appalling. Yeah, appalling is a good word. But it's a good community builder. <laughs> it really is. By the time you've, you, you know, you've changed in and out of your Spanx a few times in front of people, you know, you're, you're family for life. <laughs> is there talk of moving Griffin to a larger venue? There was about uh, about 10, 12 years ago. There was a big conversation about that, about it being not fair that a new writing theatre shoehorns every work into the same shape. But we tried co-producing with both STC and Belvoir and both of the plays that we did would have gone better had they stayed in the Griffin space. Again, there's a the audience understands it differently. The, the works are often directed differently with the focus being on the play. And so I, I remember seeing that in my formative years with Griffin going, oh, I don't think, I think there's something here. We need to keep it here. There has been a, there has been a proposal floated by council uh, for them to build a second theatre that Griffin also manages, so a larger theatre, sort of Belvoir size, that uh, could help to support the smaller theatre, mm-hmm. which is a really interesting proposition. So cross your fingers <laughs> in the next 10, 10 years or so, there might, that might be a solution to the completely unsustainable financial situation of Griffin. Yeah. Yeah. The commercial viability of 105 seats is ridiculous. So that would know, be we fine often have we, that conversation. It would be fine if we charged about, what's it, we priced it about $350 a seat, <laughs> a seat. <laughs> yeah, which is a terribly uncomfortable seat to pay that much money for. I don't know. You've got, you want to be having like some uh, opera house seats for that, I reckon. <laughs> Karen, what are you going to miss most about Lee when she moves on to her new challenge in Queensland? Well, I'm going to miss Lee's intelligence and I'm going to miss Lee's humour and I'm going to miss... The challenge of that sparkle in her eye when she comes in with some new ideas. She's not going to miss the messiness of my desk (laughs) or my inability to open incoming mail. (laughs) What will you miss most about Griffin, Lee? Uh, The laughter. It's an extraordinarily fun place to work. Uh, There's nothing like it. And I I don't actually know... the company, if you like, has been the making of me as a as a young artist, and I don't necessarily know who I am beyond the company. So that's a uh, I'll miss everything about Griffin, but hopefully, I think it's in me. <laughs> We've been talking about Griffin being an opportunity company, and I think for both Lee and I, because you know I've also had the opportunity to learn what it means to be the general manager of a subscription company with a venue, and there is really nowhere else in the country that. You can do that. And many of our staff um, really use it as a pathway um, and an opportunity to go on and, and explore, uh, you know, other things in their careers. So I think there's something unique about Griffin. We talk about it being an opportunity for writers and um, for actors and designers, designers but yeah. it's also an opportunity for the administrative staff and, and creative staff as well. And that's exciting. It's been a delight to talk to you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Angela. Thanks for listening to Griffin's special podcast series where we're celebrating 50 years of the stables. For more anniversary activities, head to Griffin's website, griffintheatre.com.au.